Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is Ralph Nader, a consumer advocate, lawyer and author. His career began as a lawyer in Hartford, Connecticut in 1959 and from 1961 to 63, he lectured on history and government at the University of Hartford. He continues to speak at colleges and universities across the US. In his career as a consumer advocate, he founded many organisations including the Public Interest Research Group and the Multinational Monitor, which is a monthly magazine. The Centre for Study of Responsive Law was founded by Ralph Nader in 1968 as his principal office. Since then, it has sponsored a wide variety of books, organising projects, litigation, and has hosted hundreds of conferences focusing on government and corporate accountability. One of the Centre's primary goals is to empower citizens. The Centre focuses on a variety of environmental consumer and worker health and safety issues. Ralph Nader, welcome again to If You Love This Planet. Thank you, Helen Caldicott. Global citizen extraordinaire. <laughs> Ralph, let's do first Citizens, Citizens United. What the hell was that law all about? What has it done to so-called the democratic process in America, and where is everything going? Give us a sort of summary of where it's at. Well, first of all, before it was issued by a 5-4 majority in a split Supreme Court in uh, January 2010, there was plenty of corporate money uh, flooding elections and corrupting elections in our country. They had to go through what was called political action committees or PACs, or they were contributions from corporate executives and bosses. What Citizens United did was overturn legal precedent in the United States and any state laws that prohibited corporations as corporations writing checks for or against uh, political candidates. And now they can write unlimited checks, billions of dollars if they wish, for or against local, state, and national candidates for office to the Congress, the legislature, governorships, White House. The only requirement is they can't coordinate these expenditures directly with particular campaigns. They've got to be like parallel highways. But in reality, they're, they're hobnobbing with the candidates that they support all the time. And there may be uh, some successful litigation to break that up. Uh, but it looks like the 5-4 majority of corporatist judges, I don't call them conservative judges, they're corporatist judges, are hell-bent on making one decision after another from the Supreme Court to replace the preamble of our Constitution from we the people to we the corporation. And I say they're corporatists 
they're not really conservatives because the most conservative hero uh, in modern Supreme Court history was Chief Justice William Rehnquist. And in several cases, he came down very hard saying, you can't provide legal conscience and freedom of speech to artificial entities called corporations because they're not human beings. And so this uh, uh, five-justice majority are far, far more corporatist, and they are really violating basic conservative principles that the rights under our Constitution uh, are to be attributed to real human beings. The word corporation, the word company, does not exist in our Constitution. Why then are we ruled by them? Because of judicial regressives like the present Supreme Court majority. Well, Ralph, you're a lawyer. You understand the law. Where the hell are these people's heads? I just, I can't get my own head around what they think they're doing. It's it's unbelievable to me what they're up to. What What is well, it? Are they taking money? Are they being bribed? Are they corporate prostitutes? What are they? Well, first of all, um, most of them are former corporate lawyers, oh. and that's the environment they come from. Mm. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts was a corporate lawyer, for example. Uh, Anthony Scalia was a corporate lawyer. Um, and that's their mindset. The second thing, once they uh, believe that corporations should have all the constitutional rights that real people have, uh, it doesn't take a leap of logic for them to conclude that since speech is, uh, is uh, money is considered free speech, that whether it is spent by an individual or by a corporation, they're both, quote, persons, quote, under the Constitution, and they should have those rights. Uh, now, of course, it disregards the factual history that corporations are not people legally. Uh, they're artificial entities. Uh, they don't die in Iraq. They don't have children. Uh, they don't. Uh, uh, ha they have perpetual life, which people don't have. Uh, and the, the the proper approach should be uh, a double standard: one standard constitutionally for real human beings, and a subordinated standard uh, for uh, corporate entities. And what the majority in the court totally ignored was the historical facts about how corporations, oil companies, drug companies, copper companies, uh, banks, insurance companies, have corrupted the political process just by the money that comes from their executives and their political action committees. And now they want to open the floodgates to the corporations directly, writing checks to oppose or uh, support their favored corporate uh, candidates. Well, how can I don't understand how money money can equal free speech? That's that makes no sense at all. It didn't make sense to Chief Justice Rehnquist, who dissented in the famous Bellotti case, uh, which uh, went against him. Uh, he had the position you just articulated that you cannot ascribe uh, money as speech and give full free First Amendment rights to the corporate entity itself. But uh, you see, uh, the regressives now in our country, the corporatists, and we should use that word corporatists anywhere in the world where it applies, mm. uh, are way, way uh, beyond any kind of conservative practices.
What you mean they don't abide by any laws at all? They don't abide by uh, conservative values, conservative traditions, respecting human beings uh, over money. Uh, I mean, one principle of conservatism is the subordination of money to civic values. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, most of the famous conservative writers in our country uh, more than once condemned the power of corporate concentration. They condemned the the, uh, inability of corporations to engage in self-restraint, engage in recognizing higher uh, moral and ethical values. Mm. But that's all by the wayside as the corporate juggernaut moves toward a de facto dictatorial corporate state or corporate government, which is maturing very fast in the United States. Well, Ralph Nader, what's your prognosis? Because things are so grim now. America doesn't have a democracy at all. Um, You know, it's it's manufacture of consent with people watching their televisions and having their brainwaves totally organized uh, by, by the advertising and by brilliant Madison Avenue psychologists for the corporations to do what they will with everyone. I mean, what, what's your prognosis for the United States? Well, let's take public opinion. Public opinion is not uh, behind the corporations. Uh, over 75% of people believe corporations have too much control over their lives. A majority of the American people polled say they want full Medicare mm. for all, replacing the health insurance companies and controlling the drug companies' prices. Mm. Uh, a majority of the people want uh, a living wage. They don't agree with Walmart or McDonald's uh, and the surf labor wages. Uh, we have the lowest uh, minimum wage in the Western world. It's yeah. $7.25. Yeah, I know that. That's and, why and, you have to tip. In Australia, we don't tip because we because we have a decent minimum wage and free health care. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in Ontario, Canada, it's ten dollars and a quarter, mm. and the Canadian dollar is at parity with the U.S. By the way, anybody's interested in that subject, what we're doing, the website is timeforarraise.org through Congress. Timeforarraise.org. But so okay, so we have public opinion behind a whole series of progressive agendas. Um, now it's about eighty percent want us to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, a large majority thinks that the military budget is too wasteful and bloated. Uh, okay, so we start with what Abraham Lincoln called public sentiment. The gap is an organizing gap. The mm. people are there, but the funds are not there. The media is not sufficient uh, to organize people in every congressional district. Because if you turn around Congress which is easiest to turn around because 535 men and women who put their shoes on every day like you and I, um, Congress has enormous authority under the Constitution to change the executive agencies and departments and, and eventually the judiciary. So what is needed, and this may sound rather quixotic, but what is needed is to find one or two multi-billionaires in an advanced age having a different perspective on life in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, mm. with some enlightened background, to hire organizers full-time to mobilize this opinion into powerful Congress watchdog groups 
in every congressional district. And then you'll see change so fast you won't believe it. Because right now there's nothing out there in, at the grassroots that's organized other than, you know, the NRA or uh, pro-anti-abortion. Uh, animal rights is the major mass movement in America today. Animal rights. What about important, Occupy? Important what, about the, it is. what about the Occupy movement? They're not organized. They don't like organization. Mm. They don't like leaders. They don't want to raise money. They have demonstrated inequality. They've gotten on the main media, but now the media is losing interest because they've been, the Occupy have been thrown out of their encampments near Wall Street and in 110 communities. So there's not much left. They still do some demonstrations uh, uh, supporting uh, homeowners who are about to be foreclosed by the crooked banks. Uh, but pretty much they're not, and it's of their own making. You know, they just self-limited themselves. Mm. We tried to get them backing the minimum wage, which would have raised the wages of 30 million, 30 million American workers to $10 an hour. And uh, they weren't interested. But they weren't interested not because they didn't support it. They just are sort of uh, free-roving souls. They're well-intentioned, but they couldn't organize a three-car funeral. <laughs> Let alone a two-car funeral. Well, Ralph Nader... What about Warren Buffett? He's a good man. Do you know him? He's got an awful lot of money. Yes, he, he's the kind of person uh, I, I'm referring to. He does have a lot of money, and I, I used him as a fictional character in my book, Only the Super Rich Can, Can Save Us. And he has given millions against uh, uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world. He's, he's given millions of dollars uh, behind uh, population issues. Uh, He's running a big conglomerate uh, that takes a lot of time. But I think he's got an opportunity uh, to really become an extraordinary historic figure. Mm. Because you you remember, he's the one who says to Congress, you're taxing rich people like me too little. Yes. Uh, My secretary pays a higher percentage of her taxes than I do. And then he actually revealed the portions of his tax return to prove it. So he's extraordinary. He's an independent thinker. He doesn't work in New York City. He works out of Omaha, Nebraska, has a small staff, doesn't believe in bureaucracy, pretty upset with Wall Street, certainly very upset with the greed that's bringing down the economy. Uh, so I think people uh, in the progressive world should really uh, reach out to him with, with some very specific agendas for for change and uh you know, he's giving away $3 billion, billion a year to the Gates Foundation, but he's on the board of the Gates Foundation, so he can redirect some of that money uh, uh, so that it isn't all on uh, dealing with infectious diseases, important as that is. Well, Ralph Nader, you know, maybe... Well, first of all, I'll say that Warren Buffett, when I, when I was president of Physicians for Social Responsibility in the early 80s, a big check arrived for the, from this man called Warren Buffett. I didn't know who he was from a bar of soap. I since found out who he was, because so I would support that he's a good man. Why, why don't you, Ralph, go to Omaha, Nebraska, and have a lunch date with him? I know he only drinks, I think he drinks... Um, Diet, cherry Coke. Cherry, yeah. cherry Coke, and he has a hamburger for lunch every day. But you can go and join him. Why do, Why don't you make an effort and go and sing? Because I'm sure 
the two of you would really meld and get on well and that you can inspire him to do what you're talking about. Well, I'm going to do that. I've already had breakfast with him in Omaha mm. a couple of years ago, and he invited me to uh, uh, deal the books at his big uh, extravaganza shareholders meeting, and uh, I'm going to do exactly that. Good, good. Um, if you want, I'll come with you. Probably won't make any difference. <laughs> but uh... Well, we'd love to have you. The, the problem is... Uh, you know, a lot of people are asking him for this and that. Yes. you got to break through the static. Yes. Uh, he's only one person. But he knows uh, He knows how to separate authentic uh, requests from uh, self-seeking requests. Yes, and he's I, highly... I hand him that. Yes, he's highly respected, and I'm sure he highly respects you with your reputation, what you've done for the country. Uh, you know, I, I love what you're saying because when I look at it mostly, I just feel there's no hope for the United States. And as the U.S. goes, so goes the rest of the world. You know, money's having an influence now in our politics in Australia in a ver to a very large degree. And, you know, it's very funny, Ralph, because every time I fly from Australia to America, as soon as I enter the country, people are screaming at me about money. Buy this, save this, do this. And it's sort of like your dollar note where there's that triangle on the note with an eye at the top, which is meant to be God. But truly, um, the real God in America now is money. They People profess to be Christians and the like, but really they're not, most of them. Money is worshipped. And when you get into that, you lose your soul, right? Yeah, mammon rules, uh, but that doesn't mean that that's all there is. I mean, there are some very, very fine people in our country oh, I know. in the million in the millions. Yes. In the millions. They, yes. they feel hopeless. They feel frightened. Yeah. They they feel insecure. They withdraw. Uh and once they come out, it'll be different. I, I really urge people to read this book of mine, Only Super Rich Can Save Us, and it's in quotes. It's extremely realistic once a handful of enlightened older billionaires decide to fund and recruit the organizers, the clean election parties, the kind of wherewithal that builds bottom-up democratic resurgence. Uh, and I'm telling you, it tells you a lot about how to deconstruct power in America. It's got a lot of drama, a lot of collision of forces, humor, and it's hard to get the American people to uh, think in terms of uh, of in, of uh, envisioning something. Mm. Uh, they've had the imagination kicked out of them for a better life in a better world. So uh, pressured and frantic they are to get through the day. And when they have a little time, they've got this commercial entertainment that overwhelms and distracts them and their children. Oh, the, you know, that iPhone and, you know, the text messaging. I mean, the young generation, it doesn't know where City Hall is. You know, it's just into text messaging, gossip, and music around the clock. Uh, however, very egocentric, them, very egocentric, very narcissistic. Yes. But, but that's the commercial strategy of corporations directed toward kids, bypassing parental authority and getting them as young as three or four years old. Yeah. There's an article in the Washington Post the other day called "Toddler TV." Toddler TV for for infants 
one year and up. Well, you know, people use the television as a as the electronic babysitter, and if you watch a baby that's put in front of a television set, it's absolutely captivated, absolutely captivated, and it can't you can't get its attention. So it's a very powerful tool for inserting engrams into that infant's mind. An engram is an electrical circuit that's triggered by experiences when you're very young and remains with you for the rest of your life. Yes, well, you know, uh, Marx uh, could have an update. He could say the iPhone is the opiate of the masses. Mm. And, uh, However, uh, once you get people, you know, without their iPhone, mm. just in, in a gathering, they become different. It becomes interpersonal. They they look in each other's eyes. They they hear each other's voices. I'm telling you, it's a lot easier to turn our country around than most people think. I'm coming out with a book in uh, October called 17 Solutions," and the subtitle of the book could be could be "It's a lot easier than you think." Well, Rav, why don't you become that leader? That's what people. People need leaders to inspire, you know, like Gandhi and like Martin Luther King and like Nelson Mandela. They respond to people with absolute altruism, which is what you have, inspiration, and they're hungry for it at the moment, absolutely hungry. They're looking for novelty. They're looking for new people. Uh, it's hard uh, for us to get press, mainstream press anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's so degraded, so trivial, so sensationalized, so commercialized, so short-term. But the bottom line is they're serving their advertisers, you know, oh, yeah. and their advertisers don't like us. So here we have our public airways are owned by the people. They're leased out free to the radio and TV stations 24 hours a day who decide who says what and who doesn't. And you know they don't want to give people who challenge corporations, i.e. their advertisers, much airtime. Well, can't so you? That's, in, why, can, that, can't that's you, why it's got to be done uh, through Congress watchdogs directly on Congress, funded by enlightened, super rich people for starters, and then it can be funded by the people once uh, they get underway. Well, sort of like a citizen startup. Can't you instigate a law case? You know, you've had some wonderful law cases in the past, unsafe at any speed and the like. Uh, to say that the airwaves are actually owned by the people and the people need to take their airwaves back from the corporations. Yes, we, we have tried that. We had very minimal success years ago with something called the Fairness Doctrine and the Right of Reply. And they, under Reagan, they got rid of both of them. Mm. And the, F, the Federal Communications Commission has been very corporatist. And the Congress, of course is corporatist. Yeah. So it's hard to find a, a basis in court uh, for something like this. There have been attempts, uh, uh, Helen, on this. It's not, it hasn't gone ignored. It's just that they have rigged the system very cleverly uh, so that they procedurally expel these cases. Uh, but again, if you, can, if you take back control of the Congress, everything flows from that. Mm. The FCC flows, the nominations flows, the judiciary flows. Congress is the tiniest branch, but the most powerful branch. But it's the one that's most susceptible to turnover because they've got to go to people for the votes. Yeah. They may like to raise a lot of money, but it's only votes that gets them where they want to be. And we've got to give those votes an informed, cutting edge, organizing every one of the 435 congressional districts.
Well, I agree. You know, when we were leading the nuclear weapons freeze in the 80s, um, when I first started in 78, most Americans said to me, they said, well, it's better to be dead than red. I said, what? You'd rather die in a nuclear war than be communist? Oh, yeah, we don't want to be communists. I mean, it was kind of collective insanity. So then we started the doctors dropping bombs on Boston and New York and vaporizing people, you know. And after about five years, the people woke up and 80% of them said, oh, they're opposed to nuclear war and nuclear weapons. And only then did the politicians wake up because they got scared that they wouldn't be re-elected unless the people supported them. And I could go to Congress. I mean, Tip O'Neill would come off the House floor when he was chairing the House to see me and say, what can I do for you, doctor? In his you, see, you, you make my point. That's yep. a very good example of something that was considered impossible, right? Yep. Uh, arms, nuclear arms treaties yep. and control on the, the weapons and the reduction of the weapons between yep. the Soviet Union and the U.S. That used to be considered total pie in the sky. Mm. But you had large marches, you had mobilization, you had person-to-person uh, connection with members of Congress, you had people back home collaring them, but also you had these, these movies that showed what nuclear weapons can do to destroy whole whole cities. And like one Trident submarine today with multiple warheads can wipe out 200 cities in the world before it reloads. And then there was that movie, uh, The on Day the After, beach, On the Beach. Or, and, the, and The Day After. Yeah. And then there was a nuclear winter that, that uh, Carl yeah. Sagan and others publicized. Uh, and it, it finally got to people. Yep. But you see, that was all done by the, the citizen movements who refused to be cynical and withdraw, and they came back. And, but you see, now after Fukushima and Japan, and day after day, more and more revelations, now the fish is contaminated, etc. Uh, yesterday's news, um, President Obama and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission say, no, we're going to build more nuclear plants guaranteed by the taxpayer, because Wall Street doesn't believe they're economical, and they won't loan money to build these big nuclear plants, so they're forcing the taxpayers to guarantee the Wall Street loans. I mean, it's like head in the sand beyond belief. However, we don't have as much organization against nuclear power today back in the districts anywhere near as much as we had in 1975 after we mobilized with these mass training convocations called critical mass. So it all comes down to finding the ways to to have the organizers in the field to motivate and mobilize the people and build it step by step very rapidly. The one thing we have now that we didn't have in the 70s, of course, is the Internet. And uh, although the Internet has been trivialized uh, a great deal, it still is a great medium to connect people and get them together out of virtual reality into reality in their Mm. communities and in their living rooms. Yes, that's right. So, Ralph Nader, what's your diagnosis of Obama? Obama is basically uh, Bush uh, extended. Uh, he's very obesient to Wall Street, despite some challenging rhetoric. Uh, he has extended uh, beyond Bush the militarization of foreign policy and the announcement that he alone, as secret prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner, uh, will uh, send the drones to kill anybody in the world that he thinks is a threat, even not an imminent threat, just that he thinks needs to be vaporized, and he's killed a lot of innocent civilians, 
as well as what are called militants who simply want to get the invaders out of their country. They don't mm-hmm. care about coming to the U.S. They want to get the invaders out of their country like anybody would in Australia or U.S. or Canada or France. So it's a huge disappointment. But the Republicans, of course, are are pursuing their worst-case scenario as a political party. And so millions of voters will trudge to the polls and vote for the least worst between Obama and Mitt Romney. Yeah. All right. So now what? we're just on the edge of it. Probably tomorrow the Supreme Court, and this interview will be played weeks from now, but the Supreme Court probably tomorrow is going to judge on Obama's so-called health care bill. How do you think they'll go? Well, it all depends on one justice, probably Anthony Kennedy. If he goes with the four Democrats, they'll uphold the law. Because really, the, the, the constitutional case for the law is overwhelming. I didn't care much for the law. I think it provided 30 million subsidized customers to be gouged by Aetna and United Healthcare and Cigna and so forth and let the drug companies continue to, to gouge uh, the American people higher prices than anywhere they are able to charge in the rest of the world. However, the constitutional arguments pretty, are pretty strong. Uh, but for Republican justices led by Chief Justice Roberts, they don't care about the constitutional arguments. They're corporatists and they're judicial activists mm. in, that, in that reign. So it all depends on, on him uh, and you know, some people think it's going to be upheld. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but if it is turned down in its core, they're not going to turn it all down. Turned down in its core, which is the individual mandate, uh, it'll set the stage for another run uh, by people who support uh, single payer or uh, full insurance for all. Free medical care. I I don't like that word single payer. It's stupid. In Australia, we have free medical care. How? Because we pay our taxes and they come back to us in the form of medical care, not in the form of killing by funding the Pentagon. Yeah, 45,000 Americans die every year, according to Harvard medical researchers, because they can't afford health insurance to get diagnosed and treated. That's 800 a week. That's over a hundred a day. Unbelievable. And 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 uh, and the and Obama is still uh, playing the game of fronting for this uh, so-called healthcare industry. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, single payer is a terrible phrase. I can't get terrible. people to drop it though. I don't. Really I don't amazing. even understand what it means, single payer. I I can't. Get it just my head means the government it. is the insurer, and the the private sector delivers the health care and the hospital care. Yeah, well, you see, there should not be a medical industry. Doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. We should treat people whether or not they can pay. And if you treat people who are poor, they'll bring you a cake or they'll bring you a chicken, you know, that they've grown themselves. But we're not here to make money. We're here to... It's it's a vacation. It's like being a nun or a priest is caring for people. And there should be no quotes healthcare industry. Nobody should be making money out of medicine. Nobody in Australia dies because they can't afford health no, insurance. No. And if you're really only, sick... Only in the USA. Yep. If you're really sick, you go to a public hospital. 
My friend fractured her patella recently into eight parts. She had the best orthopedic surgeon in Sydney. She spent five, six days in hospital, anaesthetics and the like. Didn't cost her a penny. And she's an American. The agony, the pain, the family anguish, the, the, the disasters, the tragedies that occur every day in this country, you would think would produce a revolution. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, people who come from other countries cannot believe uh, how many people die, how many people get injured, how many people get sick because they don't have health insurance. Also, and you know, Western, Western Europe, they, they cover everybody for half the cost per capita. Yeah. Like four, $4,000 per capita, and we're over 8400 and we got tens of millions of people that aren't covered at all. And, and Ralph, isn't it true that 45% of people who go into bankruptcy, they go into bankruptcy because of medical care? That's right. Yeah. That's, anyway, look, I want to talk about TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that you have revealed. Can you briefly tell us what that is, please? What well, that's uh, like NAFTA in North America on steroids. It, it basically, it, it's the the corporate governance of all corporate governance, and, and under the guise of free trade with countries in East Asia and the United States, they have an enforceable agreement that they want to get through Congress, which they haven't yet, and they want to get through the parliaments of these countries, like Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, enforceable agreement where our higher standards for environment, for health, uh, for worker safety, consumer protection, are subordinated to the imperatives of commercial trade. So in other words, if we have food labeling laws that are higher than those in the countries in East Asia, if we have worker safety laws higher their countries can come uh, to some secret tribunal set up under this proposed trade agreement and say that these laws protecting the American people are indirect trade barriers and they've got to be invalidated. And so, in other words, we, we surrender our sovereignty to a pull-down trade agreement to lower levels in countries that treat their people even worse then we treat our people in our country. So they're pull-down autocratic systems of corporate governance, secret uh, tribunals, and all this is under the so-called guise of the ideology, or should we call it the religion, of free trade. But it's really managed trade. It's hundreds of pages of rules pulling down the countries that treat their people better uh, and... These rules are written by corporate lobbyists. But isn't that what happened with the WTO, the World Trade Organization, yes. Yes, in the early is. 90s? And those rules, and it was called free trade, but it wasn't, were written by corporate lawyers behind closed doors, and the developing countries weren't allowed even into this room to hear what was going on. And it means it's true that the United... And most of the, the lawyers came from corporations in the United States and in Europe, and they determined that they would do whatever they want and violate international yeah. law, violate environmental laws, and vi violate worker compensation and safety laws, and that's what's been going on, and that's partly why, of course, America's in such trouble because most of your manufacturing jobs 
under the Free Trade Agreement and the WHO were moved to countries where labour is very cheap. Therefore, America virtually manufactures nothing these days except weapons. Yes, it's w, uh, WTO. Yeah, World we Trade almost beat the, we, almost, yeah. we almost beat the WTO in Congress yeah. and in and NAFTA, but we couldn't beat a combination of big business and and Bill Clinton, who who was arrayed against us on the side of big business. You know, trade agreements, Helen, used to just stick to trade. Yeah, they used to deal with tariffs and quotas, yeah. but under this new regime that these corporate lawyers uh, started thinking up with the Canadian-U.S. trade agreement, then NAFTA, then WTO. They have subordinated worker, consumer, and environmental standards and rights to the supremacy of trade. So it's it's the worker, consumer, and environmental rights have to get on their knees uh, before the supremacy of trade and adjust to the trade rules. And corporations, and, and, corporations. Yes, of course. And so uh, one of these days, uh, they, they, these will be repealed. Um the interesting thing about this is uh, is that if the WTO rules were really enforced and they invalidated hundreds of domestic laws yeah. in Europe and North America, yeah. it, it would be repealed. But they're very careful about what they enforce and what they don't enforce in order not to arouse the people. I don't but know. the trajectory, but the tra- trajectory is the subordination of popular sovereignty uh, to corporate uh, supremacy I worldwide. I don't know how these men sleep at night, Ralph. Mm. What, do you think they've got any moral consciences at all? They, I mean, they must know what they're doing. What they're doing is really evil. Well, you know, I'm going to write an article on this because I'm trying to project with some empathy. Why do they, why do they allow their greed to reduce their significance and reduce their reputation, and to reduce their status as human beings. Once you adopt a monetized mind of trying to get more profit, more wealth, more bonuses, and you're on a a treadmill where that's the way you're judged when you're part of these big corporations, Mm. these drug companies, oil companies, you lose your humanity. Mm. You lose any sense of proportion. You lose your soul. That's why when their children... Look at him in the eye and say, "Daddy, why are you doing this?" Mm. It like freaks them out completely because the, the kids don't have a monetized mind; they have these innocent questions of right and wrong. Mm. So we really have to uh, highlight this issue of the monetized mind, which can become so destructive because it, it attaches itself to producing and selling more weapons, producing yep. and selling more junk food that. It, produces obesity epidemic, mm. producing and, and, and emitting more greenhouse gases, which is transforming the climate and, and the planet Earth, producing more substandard wages and surf labor, which crushes people's ability to put food on the table all over the world, while the few make more and more. The top 350 richest people in the world have more financial wealth than the bottom three and a half billion mm. people. So there's there's your example of the supremacy of the plutocracy. Like how many shan- how many chandeliers can one person have? <laughs> or how many homes? How many cars? How many yachts? You know, it, it's it's uh, the greed. Greed is another word for infinity. 
There is no limit on greed. No. There are people who make two billion; they want to make four billion. Yeah. They're not satisfied with four billion; they want to make eighteen billion, and they've lost control of their conscience. They've lost control of the important things in life. And you know, someday when they're eighty or ninety, they realize it. You know, I've treated those people on their deathbeds, Ralph Nader, or. I've supported them as their children are dying and they fall into my arms and weep and they recant and they tell me all the wicked things they've done. But by, and so they fundamentally know all the way along the purity with which a baby is born and a child has is still there in the depths of their soul and they know what they're doing is wrong and evil. And so when they're face to face at the cold face of life and death, they recant, and they've known all along, but it's too late then. That's, that's true. But some of them in their 40s now, they made a lot of money. They're quitting. They're quitting what they call the rat race, and they want to do philanthropic work and and uh, and mean something. You know, I mean, uh, the phrase is from success to significance. They, they, they don't have a sense of their own significance in, in the greater uh, directions of our world, in the greater priorities of our world, but some of them are, are really quitting now, setting up foundations. That's why we have to redirect this wealth toward mobilizing people in the community to get long overdue redirections, changes, and priorities. And as long as we spend all our time on the uh, ramparts trying to put out a brush fire here mm. and there, we'll never take the longer, more fundamental view that we've discussed on this program. Wasn't it Polonius who said, getting and spending late and soon we lay waste our souls? <laughs> I have to remember that. <laughs> Good old Shakespeare. <laughs> Good old Shakespeare. He had it all. Yep. Well, look, um, I think you probably have to go, Ralph, now. Do you? Or can yeah, you... I, I've got to go. Yep. Uh, but it's, been, it's great always uh, talking with you because unlike most interviewers, you keep asking the question, what do we do? What do we have to do? Why don't we do it? Instead of simply asking questions of, uh, uh, oh, do you regret running for president? Oh, and, uh, how ridiculous. What do you think of uh, what do you think of the Republicans and the Democrats? It's all down to what are we going to do? Who's going to do it? When are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? And what are we doing it for? Posterity. Well, we need a revolution. Let's be frank. Yes. Well, of course. I mean, we're already subjected to revolutions, corporate revolutions. Mm. We need a democratic revolution. But, you know, people have got to get more self-respect to citizens. They've got to think higher of their own significance. They've got to rearrange some of the trivial use of their time. Uh, they, they've got to realize that if they're not citizens in the public sphere, they're going to be suffering more and more and trying to hold down two jobs and commute here and there. Uh, through traffic every day and and unable to make ends meet. But more that, than that's that, what the, uh, more that's than what that, the, they've got yeah. they've got to realize how much they love their children and grandchildren and what life is really about. And you know, when someone's diagnosed with a cancer, and I've seen it so often, or their child's diagnosed with a terminal illness, that's suddenly when life develops meaning for them. And they yeah, realize how right. precious it is that they've even been conceived. And then all their priorities change. And That's right. That, that, you know, we saw that with mothers against drunk driving when yeah. their children are killed by drunks. Yeah. And there are a lot of little foundations started 
exactly the way you describe it. They, they lose a loved one due to some mm-hmm. preventable da- danger or hazard, and they start a group to make sure it doesn't happen to other children. Like a Taj, their Taj Mahal. Oh, dear. It's, it really is about love. I mean, not corny Californian sort of candy-type love, but real love. And I, I said if, if a mother's child is diagnosed with leukemia, by God, she turns into a raging lioness. I mean, she'll do anything to save that child's life. Sell the house, go to the Mayo Clinic, do whatever it takes to try and ch- save that child's life. That's the sort of passion we have to mobilize in every person because everything we've discussed is big. But the biggest thing is that the earth is dying. <laughs> from global yeah, the warming. The thing is passion. You put your finger on it. It's 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 love for humanity and yeah. passion. Yeah. Passion, fire in the belly yep. is what makes people break their routine and move ahead. And suddenly they discover the power of the people and suddenly they discover that those corporations aren't as powerful as they were made out to be. They were just powerful because nobody was organized to bring them down to size. Yes, and I, to I bring think, them to bring law and order. And I think anger is appropriate. It's funny Americans have some sort of anaphylactic reaction to anger. But if anger is focused, white hot anger in the right direction, by God, you can achieve a lot. Right. There's a magazine called Yes Magazine. Uh. You might want to interview the editor. And they they really report about things that are going on all over the country on, on community economies, you know, credit unions, farmer to uh, consumer cooperatives, yes. uh, renewable energy locally, uh, all kinds of things that are uh, in, engendering sales that, that displace the sales of the big banks and, and the big energy companies because it's being produced locally. It's an, and it's very heartening and very encouraging. It's called Yes Magazine out of Seattle, Washington. Yes, and I think barter's a good idea. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I mean, communities used to live like that. Yes, that was the original exchange before money. Yeah. Uh, barter, yeah, barter and, and community health clinics that emphasize prevention. That will reduce the sales of the big health industries. So the more community economies, the more displacement of these giant multinationals, uh, one area after another. So that's a good magazine. And those of your listeners who want to get in touch with it, they, they want to get my column automatically every week, electronically. All they got to do is visit nader.org, nader.org, sign up, and you'll get my column every week. And if you want to know what we campaigned on, uh, in, in the presidential campaigns, which are good comparison with the insipid, vapid, empty campaigning today that we're watching, I, I extended my website, votenator.org. You'll see what our agenda was in 2008. I'm not running this year, but you'll see what the agenda is in order to compare it. It is a majoritarian agenda, supported by a majority of the people, uh, but the two major parties uh, don't want to have any anything to do with it because they're campaigning for corporate money. So those are the two, votenader.org, uh, 2008 website, and uh, just nader.org uh, to be on the electronic mailing list free uh, for my weekly column. Well, you haven't lost your passion, Ralph. And in fact, I think the older you've, you've become, <laughs> the more passionate you've become, right? <laughs> well, uh, that comes from experience <laughs> and, and having won a few battles in the past and being pretty... Uh, intolerant of people who 
try to make excuses for their own powerlessness and don't try to become powerful as citizens in a democracy. Well, probably you still should be president, Ralph Nader. Well, uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But at least we, we've set the standard of presidential campaigning in our three presidential campaigns. Yeah. Well, once again, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. It's great talking to you because I hardly have to ask you a question. You just go off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you, you give me the compass. You ask the exactly important <laughs> questions, <laughs> Helen. <laughs> so... Uh, Stay with it, and uh, let's talk again soon. Okay, okay, Ralph Nader. Thanks very much. You're very very welcome, Callum. Okay. Bye now. Bye. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Ralph Nader, a consumer advocate, lawyer, author, and founder of the Centre for Study of Responsive Law. You're listening to If You Love This Planet... And now we're going to hear an excerpt from a speech that I gave in Vermont at Middlebury College in April uh, 2009. It's about the medical implications of nuclear power and in particular relating to a very old, dilapidated nuclear reactor called Vermont Yankee, which is built right on the border of Massachusetts and Vermont. Well, I feel really honoured to have Bill McKibben to introduce me. He's one of my heroes, and uh, everyone talks about him, and I've read his books, so maybe we're all banding together to save the planet. Um, I'm going to walk you through... I I don't care about money very much. Um, I'm a doctor, and money's never interested me, and I hear that the argument at the moment about Vermont Yankees about money which is just a red herring. It's like, you know, if you've got some really difficult things to uh, do politically, well, you get into sex and gay marriage and stuff, which takes you off track. (laughs) So I want to talk about the medical implications of the whole nuclear fuel cycle from uranium mining all the way through to Vermont Yankee radioactive waste, an operating reactor, and why this thing has to be shut down. Um, And I come from Australia where... Um, We've got 40% of the world's richest uranium and we've got a very bad government who's in the pocket of the coal industry and we've got lots of coal. And if you look out at sea where I live, there are like 15 to 30 tankers at any one time waiting to load the coal up at Newcastle to take it to China. Um, And we're already above the level that we should be to prevent global warming. We're at 385 parts per million and some government... uh, politicians who are scientifically illiterate, most of them are, including Obama, uh, say, well, we can go up to 550 parts per million. Obama's not saying that, but many are, including my Prime Minister, because he's in the pocket of the coal companies, in the pocket of the nuclear companies. And how do we get politicians to represent us and our children and our grandchildren and all other species on Earth? As a biologist now I speak. You can't smell radiation. You can't taste it in the food and say, "Mm, I can taste the radiation in this Hershey's milk bar, chocolate bar, Um, and you can't smell it. It's invisible to the senses. It's really scary stuff. 
And you know, people at the moment are all talking about costs and stuff, but I tell you what, if Vermont Yankee melts down, it will, there will be pandemonium like there was at Three Mile Island. The doctors knew and they fled with their families, leaving their patients in the hospitals to fend for themselves. There's a study in this book um, done by Union of Concerned Scientists about a meltdown at Indian Point, 35 miles from Manhattan. Can you imagine? Well, they've got sirens and the sirens go, ooh, and everyone realises and the, and the radio says there's a meltdown at Indian Point. Where do you go? Well, you rush to the school to pick up your children. You rush to get your spouse and there's total gridlock on those roads in West, West, Westchester where the wealthy live. Then it flows down if the wind's blowing the right direction towards and hits Manhattan just in less than an hour. The bridges are blocked, the Lincoln Tunnel's blocked, no one can get out and people get irradiated. Up to half a million people could die of acute radiation illness. There's a thing called ground shine if you get out the radioactive elements short-lived that land on the ground shine back huge amounts of gamma radiation. You're in a very high radiation field. If you get a very high dose of radiation, your hair drops out, you uh, start bleeding around your gums, you get vomiting and bloody diarrhoea, and you die of massive hemorrhage or infection. In fact, at Chernobyl, where the nuclear power industry say only 56 people died, they brought in 600,000 soldiers to clean up the spent fuel rods which came from, a, there was a massive explosion, bits of spent fuel rod. If you stand next to one spent fuel rod after it's been in the reactor for a year, you'll get such a dose of radiation you'll die within days. These men were given buckets and told to go around and pick up these bits of spent in their bare hands. Within a day they developed what's called nuclear tan, they all turned brown. Their legs and arms swelled so much the skin split and their head in their brain, brain swelled and the brain's in a fixed box. There's no room for swelling, so they developed ataxia like drunk people. They got severe headaches, seizures and they died in three days. About 6,000 people have died, but already I think there are more and many of the others are getting cancer. There's an epidemic of leukemia and children living in the Ukraine and Belarus uh, there are homes, there's a wonderful film called Chernobyl Heart. There are homes full of deformed children and my colleagues, paediatricians, said they've never seen anything like it. There's a deficit of wild animals around there because people have been moved out from the environment. Now, cesium lasts 600 years, strontium lasts 600 years, plutonium lasts half a million years. There's Europe and you can see England here. There are farms in Cumbria and in Wales growing lambs whose lambs are so full of cesium-137 they can't sell them on the market. They send them to paddocks, fields where there is less cesium to sort of dilute the cesium, but they're still radioactive. 40%, and you can see that, of the European landmass is still radioactive <coughs> and will be for hundreds of years. The British government went to see the farmers and said, you've got to stop growing your lambs and selling them. And they said, well, for how long? And they said, oh, about 100 years, but it's not. I do not buy European food. I look on the labels. I don't buy Spanish olive oil. I don't buy Italian tomatoes. Turkey got a hell of a fallout. 
Don't buy turkeys exporting a lot of dried apricots, a lot of dried tomatoes. Turkey got a hell of a fallout. And I went to my health food shop and there were Turkish apricots. Australia makes lovely dried apricots. Why we got Turkish apricots? God only knows. And I said, are these radioactive? And the man said, well, they're organic. <laughs> the truth is all food's organic. Okay, so we've talked about routine releases. They call, call these releases routine because they have to release it all the time. So living near a reactor, you're at particular danger of developing a malignancy, particularly if you're a child or a baby in utero. One X-ray to the pregnant abdomen doubles the incidence of leukemia in that baby. So that's why when you go and have an X-ray, they say, when is your last period? To make sure you haven't conceived and there's a tiny little embryo in there, conceptus. Now, uh, how could a meltdown occur? Well, it's easy. I, I could produce a meltdown in a flash. All nuclear power plants are dependent upon a source of external electricity to keep this cooling water circulating because if you lose it, the reactor melts down in a couple of hours. I was outside Indian Point recently, two reactors, 35 miles from Manhattan, each using a million gallons of water a minute from the Hudson. I could have driven a little speedboat armed with Timothy McVeigh explosives into those pipes and within two, two hours the radiation would probably have been he heading towards Manhattan. This is Helen Caldicott. And that was a lecture I gave at Middlebury College in Vermont in April 2009 about the medical implications of nuclear power. Thanks for listening again today. What a lot of fun that was. We can fix it, you know, if we all get going with passion in our souls and uh, I guess a modicum of anger that will drive us. Please join us again next week for another fascinating discussion. If you want to support us, go to our website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org, and there is a donate button there where you can definitely help us. We need money to pay our producers and uh, to keep us going. Thanks a lot for listening. Back with you next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.